You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Welcome to the Progressive Policy Institute podcast. My name is Caleb Watney. I'm the Director of Innovation Policy at PPI. And today I'm honored to have on with us uh, Derek Kilmer, who is a representative uh, from Washington, their sixth congressional district. Thanks for joining us, Representative Kilmer. You bet. Good to be with you. So as uh, you're joining us for a very special today, uh, May the 4th, may the 4th be with you. Um, May the 4th be with you too. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so we're going to start off here with a round of Star Wars trivia. I hope you came prepared. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Okay, okay. So obviously, um, the first and perhaps most important question, uh, who shot first? Oh, man. Uh, I think Han Solo totally shot first. I think that's, that's obviously correct. Okay, so... I'm an, I'm an, origi- I'm an originalist. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. You're on, the, you're on the right side of history there. Um, question two, uh, what was the name of the creature that Luke and Han ride on the snowy world of Hoth? Tauntaun. Correct, correct, good. Uh, and what was the name of the scary monster that Luke has to fend off? The Wampa? Yeah, I think that's right, good job. Um, next, uh, Is that right? I got that right, right? I think that's right, yeah. All right, cool. I just okay. remember, I remember the big um, kind of bloody drumstick he was carrying too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how did Han Solo acquire his ship, the Millennium Falcon? He won it from Lando. That's correct. Uh, what was the name of the pig-like bodyguards employed by the gangster Jabba the Hutt? They are the Gamorrean guards. Right. Good, good, good. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I mostly knew them because, you know, if you ever played Battlefront 2, they were, uh, you know, a playable mode you could use. I had the action figures, man. <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay. I'm old school. Here. I'm old school, right? I mean. Yeah. Um, according to Emperor Palpatine, what was Luke Skywalker's weakness? Your friend, like you care about your friends. Yeah, his faith in his friends. Sort of a trick question. Because uh, he's also missing a hand, you know. You can imagine that being a weakness as well. Yeah. Um, on what uh, planet did the Clone Wars begin? Episode two, the one with the. the yeah, no, I, 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 yeah. you know, my my knowledge of the original. I was going to just thank you for only asking about yeah. the uh, original trilogy. Um, I had to throw in a couple of these just to test oh, your brain. Let me think. I'm trying to think. I, I can picture it. Um, Starts with a G. I, I don't know. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. Can I use a phone a friend? Um, yeah, yeah, phone a friend. Oh wait, um, it, uh, is it Geonosis? Geonosis. No, no, that's yes. where the. Oh, no, that's right. Did I get it? Yeah, that's it. That's the one okay. where, um, yeah, Count Dooku and all the uh, Trade Federation are, are planning their uh, misadventures. Um, 
According to Boss Mass, what is the speediest way to reach the Naboo? I mean, they go in a little underwater ship, didn't they? They do, they do. Through the planet core. Okay, yeah. Um, going back to the original trilogy, so you'll, you'll be on safer ground here. Uh, <laughs> uh, what was the name of Boba Fett's ship? Oh, uh, I know this. Um, it is... It is, is it like, it's Slave One? That's right, that's right, good job. Great, okay, I think, yeah, you did pretty good overall. Um, so next I'll, I'll shift a little bit. Here's more of a, a philosophical rather than maybe a trivia question. Uh, in your opinion, were the Jedi really the good guys or were the, was their Jedi code and their rejection of human emotion <laughs> the I'm sticking with the Jedi were good guys, but I, I, I can appreciate the argument at least. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there is a there is a fair fair argument to be made that they really screwed stuff up. <laughs> so. totally. I mean, I think if you kind of you know you listen to especially Yoda's advice, kind of going through the through the whole series, I don't know that you you would have ended up in a very good place. He also told Luke, you know, not to go save his friends. So I don't know about this Yoda guy, man. I'm I'm I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I I, I there's a lot of um, flawed teachers in Star Wars, right? I mean. Luke also creates Kylo Ren. So maybe we should just stop training. I know. Yeah. It seems like yeah, the, the Jedi code does not seem to you know, perpetuate very well. Uh, has very high error rate, I guess. Um, so to, to wrap up this section, uh, please give me your ranking of your top three Star Wars films. And I will include uh, non-episodes. So like uh, you know, Rogue Monster. One. Yeah. 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 Well, I, 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 I probably go Empire first, then o OG Star Wars, the, A New Hope. And I may go Rogue One third. Ooh, that's a, that's a dark horse candidate. I like that one. I, I you know, I, I, it's probably that or Return of the Jedi uh, third. I really do like the original trilogy yeah. the best. <laughs> um, and what, what is your uh, thought on the, the new trilogy, the, the, the Ray and Kylo Ren ones? See, here's the thing. I, I, I've explained this to, to some of my friends. I don't watch it as a, I don't watch as a critic. Like I watch it as a total fan, right? Like I love all things Star Wars and I will um, like anything related to Star Wars that's on TV is for me or at the movies far better than anything else I will watch. <laughs> so um, I just love all of it. And, and um, you know, I mean, I can critically say like, well, this is no original trilogy, but I still loved it more than anything else I saw at the movies over the last few years. How about you? Right. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm mostly in the same camp. I thought especially um, The Force Awakens episode uh, seven, it almost had kind of like um, like a generational passing of the torch element where, you know, parents, it was very repetitive on the story element, which actually I, I think allowed for a nice parallel. You know, parents could take their kids to it and sort of like watch the same genre of story, the same sort of similar character arc, same, you know, villain uh, archetypes that they have to defeat. Um, but obviously, you know, the audience has changed a lot. And so is the Star Wars universe. And so you could kind of, you know, go through this, this similar um, story, but kind of through new eyes. And then I think a lot of parents had fun sort of watching their kids have the same sort of experience too. I, I, like, the, I like the newest trilogy. I would say the original trilogy, or the, the um, original trilogy is my favorite. And one through three, I think had some, had some duds. Although, you know, I'll roll with episode three. I mean, it's pretty dark. But I'll, I'll, I'll ride, I'll ride with that anytime. <laughs>
I think that's right. I, I think the other thing that's underrated about the the I guess the prequels is just the 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 scope and the ambition of the the world building in it. You know, it was it was maybe executed very poorly, but at least you know the he, he wasn't playing around. He wasn't trying to you know just stick with the original formula. He was really trying to mix things up. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> Great. Um, but yeah, are, are there other works of, of science fiction that that you really like, whether they are movies, TV shows, books? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, you know, mostly movies, you know, my first job was working in a video store, which, um, for your younger listeners, we used to have these things called video stores. Um, uh, but I, I, I was a complete fan of, of sci-fi movies. I liked some of the kind of, um, sci-fi slash action movies so total recall i thought was amazing and terminator i would call it a, a sci-fi movie um i thought minority report was uh also just extraordinary all the kind of Ar- arthur c clark stuff also i just find really interesting stuff um blade runner you know all of those movies i, I those were um i would frequently rent them from the video store when we had video stores like netflix but in person wild it seems like a dark time <laughs> <laughs> what was it um were there particular aspects of maybe those societies or those stories that you liked was was there like particular technologies that you really wished that you know you could see maybe in our lifetime from the science fiction stories well it's interesting i think different things had different appeal to me so you know like i i would count uh, I, I like all the space stuff because you can envision it being real, right? Like I, I think in recent years, probably my, probably my favorite was The Martian. Mm. And even though it's sort of a dark twist on us ex- exploring Mars, um, I thought it was great. And I thought it was just very well done and their use of sort of hard science in in those discussions was, I think, a lot of fun. I mean, part of it is just being able to picture things, you know, I go back to things I watched as a little kid, you know, like you'd watch episodes of Star Trek and there are technologies that they, unfortunately not yet the transporter, which I could really use to get home from Washington, DC would save me a six hour plane flight. But, you know, things like the communicators that that kind of came to pass. So one of the things that I'm geeked out about is it's fun when science fiction sort of uh, predicts technologies that actually come to pass. Totally, yeah. Um, what are some of the technologies that have come about recently that maybe you're the most excited about or you know, that you, you've seen come into being from science fiction that you're, you're particularly excited? Or I'll even include things here that are on maybe the near horizon, things that aren't quite here yet, but seem to be almost here. It's a great, uh, it's a great question. I, I think certainly the way we communicate is, is one of them. You know, you go back to, to Star Trek communicators and, you know, Dick Tracy wristwatches, you know, and they, they, they sort of, they absolutely informed how we communicate now, you know, they are today's smartphones and smartwatches, you know, uh, I think certainly if you, again, if you look at um, at, at science fiction, you had early thoughts about, you know, 
what ro- what robotics would look like, you know, to, to, in some pr- pretty dark view of robotics, <laughs> things like 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, uh, th- those are, I think, um, maybe a darker view of Terminator, obviously a darker view of, of robotics. But, you know, I think that a lot of that has come to pass. I actually think I mentioned Minority Report is one of the sci-fi films that I've uh, really taken a shine to. I don't think it, and I hope it didn't properly predict how crimes will be solved and prevented, but I, I really actually thought it was cool how they envisioned the future of retail. Uh, you know, when he's, when he's fleeing danger and he's getting micro targeted with ads, um, you know, just walking around and how we purchase things. I I actually think that that may not be that far off. I mean, as we've met with retailers, you know, they're thinking about how to use technology and how to micro target. I think that's, that's kind of interesting stuff. Um, you know, absolutely space, uh, space travel beyond the moon. I think, you know, that has been something that has come to pass that, uh, or, or that we're working on that was previously just envisioned in science fiction. And I don't think we're that far off. I mean, certainly travel to Mars, I think is in our lifetimes, uh, and hopefully much sooner than that. So yeah, I'm enthusiastic about those things because the, 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 the sort of the common denominator in all of this stuff is I like it when there is fiction that lets our imaginations run wild. And when we can envision a life or a technology outside of what we have right now. And that's part of the reason I'm a fan of this stuff. Totally agree. Uh, my dad is, is actually a literature professor. And, you know, uh, growing up, he would, he would always tell me about the, the, power of stories to basically almost like let us run simulations of ourselves, both sort of in the past, uh, you know, how, how would human society have responded to various challenges if, you know, variable X or Y had been different. And similarly, you know, we can imagine for ourselves what might be the problems or the promises of various technologies if we end up getting them. And then, you know, we can sort of prepare ahead of time uh, through this practice of, of telling each other, you know, stories and then thinking about uh, how we, we ought to respond in different situations. It's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really think that there's, uh, there's a lot to be, um, to be learned and a a lot of, you know, sometimes the, uh, what we get from fiction can, can spark an idea that, that actually turns into something that actually makes our lives better. Absolutely. Which, uh, brings us to our next point. Let's imagine I make you the, um, you know, R and D czar for for the United States. Uh, what would you like to see us be spending more money on to really, you know, make some of these um, fantastic technologies a reality? Well, I think for one, uh, we need to dedicate more funding to research and development. Period. You know, I, I, my background was working in economic development professionally, and when I worked for the Economic Development Board in Tacoma. Uh, we had a sign up in the office that said, we are competing with everyone, everywhere, every day, forever, which I confess kind of freaked me out a little bit. But <laughs> I think it's a pretty good ethic, not just for folks who work in local economic development, but it's a pretty good ethic for our country, too. The reality is yeah. we're competing in a global mar- marketplace and we're not keeping up. I mean, we used to dedicate far more of uh, of 
our federal budget to, to R&D spending. We've seen a gradual decrease and now it's at the lowest it's been in 60 years. And I think that's a problem. It's a, you know, and, and we've been in this position before, you know, we've seen this play out before in a different era. You know, Congress rose to the challenge in a bipartisan fashion. You know, you had back in 1957, you know, a satellite the size of a beach ball launched by the Soviet Union. And Congress responded by by doubling research and development spending, by tripling support for basic research. You know, it put science education efforts on steroids. And, and that's how we got to the moon first. And we're still seeing the benefits of those investments today. Every time we, you know, use a touchscreen on a smartphone or a tablet, we're using technology that was pioneered by NASA research. And the question I think before us now is, will we continue to allow those Sputnik moments to happen every day without our nation stepping up? You know, we are facing these Sputnik moments. And let me give you an example. So I I just had to speak to a STEM uh, group in my district. And and they're doing awesome stuff in Kitsap County, Washington. They're doing, it's the Westtown STEM network. And when I visited with them, I said, like, just think of the problems we have in our county, you know, so for which research and development and STEM education could really make a difference. So, you know, how do we engineer a major transportation solution for our region's most congested roadway and do it in a way that can save fish and be resilient from the impacts of climate change? Because it goes right along the shoreline. You know, how do we the largest employer in the district I represent is the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. So how do we design and engineer and construct a new public shipyard ready to maintain the the Navy's fleet of the 21st century? You know, how do we save Puget Sound, which is our nation's largest estuary by volume, and make sure that future generations can make their lives and their livelihoods on it? You know, how do we have computer systems that will be cyber secure? Uh, How do we address uh, climate change? How do we deal with future pandemics? Uh, you know, how do we provide healthcare um, to an aging population? All of these things, one, depend on us educating a population um, of uh, uh, educating a workforce in science, technology, engineering, and math. And all of these problems require at least some problem solving uh, because right now there are questions for which we don't have the best answers. And that's part of the value of, of the investments we make in research and development. Could not agree more. Uh, I think that's that's all so great. I, I want to echo something you sort of, uh, you know, a little bit earlier uh, in your answer, um, sort of talking about the, the global nature of innovation. Uh, you know, something that we spend a lot of time thinking about here at PPI is sort of uh, global innovation arbitrage uh, is, is one term I like for it. But the idea that um, yeah, in, in the same way that, you know, capital and investment can kind of flow across borders to the area in which it's most welcome, uh, innovation can happen that same way too, you know, whether it be uh, cutting edge technologies or also just entrepreneurs as they're um, starting new businesses and uh, deciding, you know, what place is, is really the best country, has the best set of uh, public infrastructure, has the best trained workforce, has, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the smartest scientists, uh, welcoming capital markets, also that, you know, they can launch their business in the most welcoming area. Um, so in addition to maybe, you know, spending more on basic research, are there other things that the U.S. should be doing to try to, you know, make sure that we are the cutting edge, the best place to be starting a new, you know, science or technology startup? 
Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, so there's a few things. Obviously, one direct investment in 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 basic research. Um, two, I mentioned the investments that we make in science, technology, engineering, and math education really matter. And you've seen some progress on this this year. You know, the whether we're talking about the passage of the National Apprenticeship Act, which is the first time this program has been updated since 1937. You know, and a big focus in that technology was in in, in that uh, legislation was not just on um, sort of traditional trades for which there's been apprenticeships, but also looking at tech related jobs of the future, um, you know, looking at how to grow computer science programs. I think that is really valuable. Um, I also wrote a bill called the Compete for the Future Act to have the federal government step up and support youth and, and pre-apprenticeship programs that that focus on career connected learning opportunities. I think again, as, and there's all sorts of arenas through which uh, entrepreneurs may say, Hey, that there's real opportunity there. We have a, in my district, for example, a health sciences high school that is really looking at how, how, when a student graduates from high school, how they may be able to uh, pursue a job in the health sciences. There's real opportunity there as well. Beyond that, I think immigration policy really matters. You know, the reality is um, high-skilled immigrants are opportunity-generating powerhouses. You know, if you look at the 2020 Fortune 500, 45% of them were founded by immigrants. And that shouldn't be surprising. You know, that we, 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 we know from the data that high-skilled immigrants are substantially more likely to start new firms. Um, you know, and so I think it is worth looking at legislation where uh, uh, we can create more economic opportunity by ensuring that particularly when someone uh, comes here to, to school and gets an advanced degree, that we keep them around to grow jobs here rather than to go back to their country of origin and start uh, a business someplace else. I think there's, there's real value in looking uh, at those policies as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of work on that uh, here at PPI. Uh, you know, we've written, uh, for, for example, one paper on the international entrepreneur rule, uh, you know, the yeah. Obama era um, parole rule. And we'd love to obviously see that kind of, you know, scaled up within the Biden administration, but then also maybe, you know, formalized. Obviously, a, a parole program is, is better than nothing, but it provides a lot more stability to have maybe a more formal startup visa um, be enshrined. Because, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, evidence that graduate students who come to the United States for, uh, you know, master's or PhD programs, uh, they report just as high interest, you know, in starting their own company or working for a startup. But then in actuality, just due to the visa program, it's so hard for them to, uh, you know, find a viable path to stay. And so oftentimes they, they end up needing to work for, you know, big tech companies because that's that's the only uh, path that they have to uh, a visa. Um, yeah, so I, I think you're, you're right on, on the, the immigration side of things as well. Um, one of the big, uh, you know, maybe science policy discussion points that we've seen in Congress and is, is being actively debated right now is the Endless Frontiers Act in the Senate and then the, the NSF for the Future Act in the House. Um, I'd be curious to get your sort of broad thoughts on those bills or, um, you know, in what ways could they be improved or, or um, yeah, just sort of your broad thoughts on those bills. Well, here's what I'm enthusiastic about. I'm enthusiastic when there is a bipartisan and bicameral discussion about actually reinvi reinvigorating American research. I, I think that's a big deal. Um, you know, we know that that can be central to, to reinvigorating our innovation economy. 
um, and hopefully help drive uh, research and development and in, in our country, uh, hopefully help lead to the creation of new jobs here in our country and help keep us economically competitive against China and, and other countries. You know, in the Endless Frontiers Act, it does that by investing in the NSF to uh, advance R&D, invest in the Commerce Department to help, you know, build regional technology strategies and build new hubs. I think there is value in that. And it also aims to, to, to strengthen some of our technology supply chains. And so ultimately, it seems like this is the type of bill that the White House wants to get behind. And it looks, you know, certainly like there's a plan to, to take some action on this in the legislative branch. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see ideas like this. The other thing, though, is we have to execute on it. I mean, you, you, you go back and look at things like the America Competes Act, where Congress made substantial promises around increasing federal investment in research and development, and then largely ignored the law that it passed. You know, it's one thing to authorize these investments, and another, it's another to actually pull the trigger on them. Yeah, totally agree. Um, do you think that there are lessons the U.S. can learn from um, other countries in terms of how they structure, you know, science and, and R&D policies? So as one example that I've been particularly interested in, um, I think it, it's New Zealand has been uh, running sort of a, a trial experiment with research lotteries. So uh, a lot of principal researchers that get grants from NSF or NIH report, uh, you know, spending sometimes absurd amounts of their time sort of on uh, grant related compliance and follow up. I think one study I, I saw said 42% of, of the principal researchers time was, was filled up by that. Um, and so New Zealand has been experimenting with, with a lottery system where so long as you meet some you know, minimum threshold of quality, you're automatically entered into you know, their, their equivalent uh, research funding lottery. And so far in the, the small pilot programs they've, they've run, they haven't found any decrease in research quality. And of course, the, the researchers uh, like it much more, too, because it's, it's less um, bureaucracy for them. Um, so I, I think that's one example of something that I'd be, I would love to see our NSF or our science funding be maybe experimenting with. Are, are there other reforms or, or ways of doing science funding that other countries um, use that uh, you think the U.S. should be looking at more deeply? Um, yes. Uh, and, and actually, there's been amazing work done on this by the, the National Academies. You know, the, the, you can go back, gosh, a decade and a half ago, the Rising Above the Gathering Storm report really looked at U.S. research and development policy strategy and spending and laid out, I think, very thoughtful reforms that that informed the initial America Competes Act, which was bipartisan. Um, not to mention the follow-up report, which I can't remember the name of it. I think it was something like The Empire Strikes Back Above the Gathering okay. Storm, something like that, uh, was the sequel Um uh, so that looked at that that looked at some of the sort of regulatory issues that you just mentioned. It looked at overall R and D spend, and again, part of our challenge is the while commitments were made under those policies, we haven't kept up in terms of the actual appropriations to to basic uh, research investment, and we're certainly investing less than some of the nations with whom we're competing. Whether we're talking about Germany or Japan or China or South Korea. Uh, those are those are concerns. Um, I think there's something to be learned from uh, from some of the nations with whom we compete around STEM uh, STEM education as well. 
and immigration policy. You know, to, to me, there is a real concern when we choose to uh, invest a lot of effort and time and money and resources and helping someone get an advanced degree only to see them go back to their country of origin and create a business that competes with ours here in the United States. We want that innovation to happen here. And I think there's value in, in also looking at those immigration policies as we discussed. Yeah. And, I, and I, the, the only other thing I, I want to say is all of this kind of can sound sort of ethereal or like some sort of distant policy conversation. The reality is it makes a real difference in regions like mine. I mean, right now, the only, uh, uh, the only um, lab in the national, in the Department of Energy's national lab system that focuses on water-based research is in my district. It's in it's in a small town in called Squim, Washington, uh, not too far from where I grew up on the coast of Washington State. And there's they're doing really interesting research about you know kind of how the oceans interface with land and uh, around how to produce energy from everything from tidal research to the use of algae, you know, and importantly, in a county that is desperately need, in need of jobs. They're providing some really terrific, highly paid jobs based on a choice of, of the federal government to invest in research. And so, you know, some of these discussions can actually come home to our local communities, and that matters too. This is not just a conversation around what happens in Silicon Valley. This is happening in our communities all over the country, where it should. Absolutely. Great. Well, we want to be respectful of your time, so I'll ask you uh, one final question, and we'll tie it back to Star Wars. Uh, obviously, Disney has talked a lot about the uh, many number of maybe future movies or future trilogies that might be coming out. Uh, is there anything you would like to see Star Wars maybe tackle in the future um, so that you know we can pass that along to Disney and hopefully get that made? I'm all in on an uh, entire uh, movie about Boba Fett. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm totally geeked about like the lineup, actually, and the whole Kenobi series. I'm all in on that. I, um, yeah, I, they're doing so many. I mean, it's, it's a, a real cornucopia of Star Wars. I'm I'm ready. I'm I'm excited about the Ewan McGregor comeback as as Obi Wan. I think that's going to be very watchable. Uh, let's see. Do I want anything else? Do I want them to look at anything else? Um, I think those are, I mean, th those are the biggie. I, you know, I, I, I have a, a um, uh, in my uh, office in Washington, DC, a life-size cutout of Luke Skywalker. So I think there's all sorts of fun that we could follow Luke Skywalker to a little bit more. Um, I think those yeah, are. Sounds great. I'm all in. Honestly, if Disney's listening, whatever you produce, I will be there. And I, I really hope that we get this pandemic in the rearview mirror because I want to, I want to get to Disneyland and see the Star Wars world. I think that, that looks amazing. Totally, totally. I just want them to make you know lightsabers real so that my childhood fantasy can you know be realized. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how you lose a finger. I'm like, yeah, I, or, or worse, right? Like, um, <laughs> I would care about it. Yeah. I have to tell you, in my district, there is actually a dedicated shop that only sells Star Wars merchandise. Um, it's in Aberdeen, Washington. Oh, 
uh, home of, uh, of Kurt Cobain from, from Nirvana. And actually, they, <laughs> the, the light pole on the street outside their shop, they turned into a lightsaber, which That's is so just, it's just amazing. And the, the store is just mind-blowing. You go in and you can, you can purchase a life-size Han Solo frozen in carbonite. You can purchase... I mean, it's like a, it's like a Star Wars hoarder's paradise. There, there's, there's so much there. And every time I have a colleague who visits my neck of the woods, I encourage them to go visit. That's amazing. I will definitely have to put on my um, post-pandemic to travel to list. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we welcome you to Washington 6th District. And anyone listening, um, we welcome you. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for joining us, Representative Gilmer. It's great to have you. You bet. Next time I'll see you apparently on Geonosis. <laughs> Perfect. See you then. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.